I received the following email from Linda Viprino just yesterday afternoon, and I asked her permission if I could share it with you today, and she said I could. So this is what she wrote me. Hi, Doug. So what do we do when knowing that God is with us through suffering, the same suffering he has allowed to happen isn't enough? You get that? What do we do when knowing that God is with us through suffering isn't enough? The answer for me, she wrote, was always what I told Jack Whittles 20 years ago, which I have already shared with you. He asked me one morning before choir rehearsal, after the cancer madness, Linda was going through cancer treatment at the time, how I kept going, and I told him to just keep believing in Jesus and holding on with both hands. A few years later, right before he died, Jack sent me a note saying that what I had told him that morning in the chapel helped him keep going, and he thanked me again. But here I am, so many years later, and still battling more physical, emotional, and financial issues that never seem to end. And of course, I'm not unique. Millions are suffering, and not just from COVID. And while I try not to blame God, I do know that he has allowed it to happen, and it is the only one with the power to make things better. We don't know the mind of God or why there is so much suffering, and there it is. Maybe it's true that without suffering, we wouldn't believe in or need God. But does there need to be so much of it? So many kinds of illnesses that it's mind-boggling. I try to keep going despite the issues because I think giving up would be worse. But just because I still believe that God, being the creator of the universe, can do what he chooses without my approval doesn't mean I'm going to accept it or be happy about it. After all, he gave me my mind and the ability to think for myself. If he had wanted a yes man or a woman, he would have created a world of robots. But because I know that God is the only one with the answers or the reasons why, I keep holding on with both hands, hoping one day he might share some of the reasons with me. You told me a long time ago that there are some things that we don't have the answers to, and if you don't know why, you need to be honest and say you don't know. Thanks for always being there. God bless, Linda. Well, that was like a perfect God-ordained introduction to what I wanted to talk with you about today because it's hard for me to believe that it's 40 years ago in 1981, when Rabbi Harold Kushner published the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Some of you are familiar with that book. And the main question that Rabbi Kushner addresses is, if the universe was created and governed by a good and loving God, why is there so much pain and suffering in it? Exactly the question that Linda was writing about. And that book is dedicated to the memory of his young son, Aaron, who died at the age of 14 back in 1977 of a rare and incurable genetic disease. Many people ask, 
Why do bad things happen to good people? Far less asked, it seems to me, is why do good things happen to bad people? And that's what Psalm 73 is asking, right? Why do things seem to work out so well, at least for a while, for some individuals who are disobedient to, who defy or even reject God, and at the same time work out so disappointingly for people who love God and regard God with the highest possible esteem? There are three wisdom psalms, Psalm 37, Psalm 49, and Psalm 73, that are especially concerned with this problem that has puzzled people of faith for centuries. And the book of Job, which we heard from last week, also addresses this issue. So we're going to listen to the rest of Psalm 73. We're going to pick up at verse 13. And you have heard in those first 12 verses that David shared with us, he's pouring out, it's basically, hey, why do the wicked and the evil seem to have it so good? In verse 13, it continues, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I have been plagued, and I am punished every morning. If I had said, I will talk on in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places to make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes on awaking You despise their phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. But as for me, It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. Amen. I love how the Psalms are, you know, it's in the Bible, so we call the Psalms part of the Word of God, but they are truly, in fact, the words of people to God that have become the Word of God over time. And the problem in Psalm 73 is the same as the book of Job that Job preached from last week. How do we reconcile the belief that God is just with how unfair life seems to be in this world? And the psalm begins with a statement of faith that reflects the perspective 
found in the book of Deuteronomy. That if you're faithful to God, if you live an honorable, just, and obedient life, trying to do the right thing for the right reasons, then God will be good to you and bless you. That's why the psalm begins, truly God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But that's followed by a confession of a person who feels like he is losing his faith. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, the writer of this psalm was a man named Asaph, and he was a leader of one of the temple choirs. He dedicated his life to serving God. Back in 1 Chronicles chapter 25 and verses 1 and 2, we learn that David and the officers of the army had set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. There you go. That's the rhythm section. The list of those who did the work and of their duties of the sons of Asaph, Zachar, Joseph, uh, Nathaniel, Azarel, sons of Asaph under the direction of Asaph who prophesied under the direction of the king. Okay, so Asaph is like the top worship leader. So it's this person who's influencing untold numbers of people who's having this struggle of faith. He's in this position of significant spiritual responsibility in the temple, but like many of us, he's experienced difficulties and struggles in his life, and he's questioning the injustice of it all. Because in his experience, the wicked seem to be healthy, attractive, prosperous, prideful, violent, cruel in their speech, lacking empathy for others, openly defying God with no apparent cost or consequence at all. And when Asaph sees the unfairness of life, his faith is almost broken and destroyed. He's ready to throw up his hands and to walk away from God, saying, why bother? What's the point? What difference does it make? And the longer many of us have lived, I suspect we have had at least a few moments like that. If we're honest. Tragedy strikes and the innocent are killed by the violent. Or you're knocked for a loop by physical or medical or relational news. Or you're struggling to get by while people with utterly no regard for God live long, healthy lives and seem to get rich even though they're unethical. And many of us have had moments like Asaph where we say, come on, God, get with it. If you're really there, why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you prevent it? How did you let that happen? If you're there, why don't you answer my prayers? I'll wait. And the only thing Asaph says that restrained him from speaking out his doubts and giving up on God was his concern for the effect it would have on the faith of other people. Because he realized in his significantly visible role, if he came out and said this, as a leader of worship and a teacher, he, did, he didn't want his spiritual crisis and struggle to cause many others to lose their faith. 
It's kind of like the story I like of a small Eastern European town that was shaken and stunned by the news that one of their most respected citizens, Abraham the cobbler, had become an out-and-out atheist. And it was the sole topic of conversation all around the small town. People said it was hearsay, it couldn't be true, but no one had spoken directly to Abraham about it, so it was still only a rumor, though a shocking one. But on the following Sabbath, it became clear to everyone in town that for the first time in 30 years, Abraham was not in his customary seat in the synagogue. Could he be sick? No. For when the service was over, they saw him walking through the town, quietly down the street, the very picture of health, and everyone was staring at him. And finally, Yusel, the tailor, couldn't, he couldn't keep it in, and he said, Abraham, there's a rumor that you have become an atheist, and you were not in synagogue just now. Is this true? Are you indeed an atheist? And Abraham looked quietly at Yusel and walked away without saying a word. Well, everyone looked at him in confusion, and by the next day it was clear no work was going to get done in this town until people found out what was going on with Abraham. So a delegation was appointed with Yusel the tailor at the head of the delegation, and they came and they went to his shop and they insisted on an answer, and in they went, and Yusel said, tell me now, Abraham, we must have an answer. Are you an atheist? And Abraham said immediately and with certainty, yes. And Yusel said, then why didn't you tell us yesterday when we asked? And Abraham's eyes grew wide with horror, and he said, you wanted me to say I was an atheist on the Sabbath? <laughs> well, like Abraham in that story, there's still something in Asaph that moved him not to want to cause other people to lose their faith. And so searching for an answer to the problem of the prosperity of the wicked. He kept wrestling. But it was so excruciating that pondering it through is wearing him out. And he wrote, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Have you ever felt like that? I have. And Asaph writes, he couldn't find an answer until he came into the sanctuary of God. And while worshiping God, Asaph receives a new and a deeper sense of God's presence and power. He gains a longer-term perspective on the prosperity of the wicked that reminds him how temporary their success is and how quickly their fortunes can change and how in a moment it can all be swept away. And we've seen this happen. Psalm 73 to me is valuable because it illustrates, first of all, God's openness to your prayers when you feel like you're losing your faith. I've told many people through the years, there is no emotion you can't bring to God. God's got pretty broad shoulders. God can handle it. And God will listen to your complaints about good things happening to bad people and how unfair life seems at times. And Asaph, though, gets to a point where he's able to say, you know what, I, I was really kind of stupid and ignorant for me to say what I said. Which reflects a level of humility, right? I was stupid and ignorant to be envious of the wicked. And he's, 
you know, say, you know, for feeling sorry for himself, that God's not rewarding him enough for being good, and at the same time, God's not punishing others enough for being bad. And that's something we're wise to learn in our own experience, not to focus so much on why doesn't God stick it to, but to focus instead on our relationship with God in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our situation, because that is what will get you through. My friend Mitch, a number of years ago, sent me the words of a country song, Pray For You. I don't know if any of you know it, um, but that's the lyrics express the feelings of someone unlike Asaph, who's not able to make the move from bitterness to a deeper understanding and experience of God in the midst of his pain. The lyrics go in part, you may not know it, so it says, haven't been in church since I don't remember when. Things were going great till they fell apart again. So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do. Can't go hating others who done wrong to you. And sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn let the good Lord do his job, and you just pray for them. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and no one calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. Really glad I found my way to church because I'm already feeling better. And I thank God for the word. So I'm going to take the high road and do what the preacher told me to do. You keep messing up and I'll keep praying for you. I pray your tire blows at 110. I pray you pass out with your best friend and wake up with his and her tattoos. Just know wherever you are, near or far, in your house or in your car, wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. I can say with a fair degree of confidence that this is not what God intends for us to do when we pray for other people. Rather, we are to follow the example of Psalm 73. Because Asaph realizes the most valuable thing you can have in life is something the wicked lack. And that is the Lord's presence with you. None of us can take shelter in believing we're all good and someone else is all bad. Romans 3.23 reminds us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All humanity is in the same boat. No one is perfect. No one's without sin. And when you focus on the wickedness or the shortcomings of others to the neglect of your own relationship with God, you're getting off the path. And that's the, why the key word in Psalm 73 is in verse 23. And if you have your own Bible, I encourage you to underline this word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, even though I don't understand it all. Nevertheless, even though at times I feel like my faith is hanging on by a thread. Nevertheless, even in all my pain, nevertheless, even as I pour out my complaint to God, nevertheless, I am continually with you. 
You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. There's a continuity and a closeness of relationship for Asaph that is conveyed through touch and counsel that's invaluable for him. And the psalm that begins in bitterness and feeling separated from God because of the difficult problem of the prosperity of the wicked. And the difference between what faith expresses and believes and life experience in a corrupt and a broken world requires a newer and deeper understanding of God. And that's why we see in the beautiful movement of this psalm that it ends with words of great devotion and faith. And the turning point is that word, nevertheless. That doesn't turn you away from the problems of life but turns you towards the world with all of its disparities and unfairness with the confidence that God is still present. Even though we may not see it or understand it, the belief that God is still present and at work. It's good to be able to say with Asaph, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forever. Indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. Can you say that? As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. The greatest thing you can have in life is a vital, real, growing relationship with God that lasts forever, even after your body fails, and it will. And while we may find it perplexing or even troubling, God is indeed good, both to the good and the bad, sinner and saint. And Jesus encourages us to an even higher spirituality than we see in Psalm 73 when he says in Matthew 5, God bless you, verses 43 to 48, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. I'm going to say that's the good over there. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, or whole or complete, as your heavenly Father is perfect or whole or complete. Friends, I'm just telling you, there's a whole lot of us Christians who are not doing what Jesus says in those verses. We're just not doing it. The demonization of those with whom we disagree must stop. It's not Christian. It's not Christ-like. Jesus wants you to pray for your enemies in a far different way than the country song I mentioned earlier. 
He wants you to pray for their salvation. He wants you to pray for their transformation. He wants you to pray for them to develop a relationship with God so they can say the same thing that Asaph says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever because for me it's good to be near God. That's what you pray for your enemy. No matter what your circumstance or situation today, I hope that can be your statement of faith as well. That though your body may fail, God is the strength of your heart and your portion and refuge forever. May you always be able to say, but as for me, it is good to be near God. Because you have made the Lord God your refuge. Please join me in prayer. Lord, may we seek you before all else. Before we respond. Before we react. Before we determine before we decide, before we speak, before we remain silent, before we move, before we stay still, before we hold on, before we let go, before all else. In the name of Jesus, the eternal lover of our soul, amen.